0: need something original and affordable for mother's day etsy has it shop until may 12th for up to 30 percent off gifts for mom terms apply welcome to cbs audio's
1: eye on veterans i'm your host phil briggs i'm a navy veteran and every week i get a chance to look at the issues of the day through the eyes of my fellow military vets now, sometimes we get a military veteran expert in here to talk about the issues in the news, and other times we'll talk about the issues that uniquely affect veterans. But I tell you, every episode will bring you fascinating guests with incredible stories to share. My goal every week is simple: bring you something informative and something that will inspire the hell out of you. This is the news and stories about the veteran lifestyle. This is I on Veterans. This week, we'll hear the fascinating story about a woman who joined the Army right out of high school. And after a few years and a couple beers later, she would end up working just steps away from the President of the United States. Today, we'll hear how Darian Page went from junior enlisted to the Oval Office.
2: So I was a 27 Delta, which was a paralegal specialist. And that part was really interesting also how... How do you see NJ applies in a war zone? I was out at a bar with some friends. It was, you know, $20, all you can drink. Other kids walked in in Obama shirts, and one of my girlfriends says, you know, we have to go say something to them. And he calls me into his office, and he says, if we win this thing, you're on the first flight out. And he says, can you sit in here and run the West Wing? Um, bon Jovi asks if he can use the restroom. I take him down to the restroom and he comes back out immediately And I just hear the president say, "What?" You can't say it, but you know it's true.
1: What's happened more recently, what happened immediately afterwards and uh, what you're on to now.
2: We've also launched a podcast called Pod is a Woman, and it brings together um, some really diverse voices, especially women's voices.
1: Well, it's another inauguration week and another group of people moving into the White House, a new president, a new staff, with that dozens of people making their way to their new desks. And we found an interesting story about a former junior enlisted Army soldier who did just that. She's an Iraq War veteran. And she later went on to sit at the helm of the White House during President Obama's term, serving in a unique position called ROTUS, which is critical to the function of any POTUS. And there she also was White House Director of Veterans and Wounded Warriors and Military Families Outreach. And now she's an executive with Lyft. She's also the co-host of a fascinating podcast called Pod is a Woman that's bringing women voices and focusing on the issues unique and relevant to their lives. And she does it with two other veterans of the Obama White House. So I'm glad to have on the show and really get to know my fellow veteran, Darian Page.
2: (laughs) Hi, Phil. So nice to be here with you. I mean, be here online and not in person, but I'm really glad to be sitting down for a conversation with you
1: today. Yeah, this is gonna be good. And reading your bio, I just was like, "Wow, man!" When I was 27, I can't even tell you the <laughs> derelict <laughs> I was doing. It, I, I, I wasn't even making sense. I, I, I think I was like a still a E4 in the Navy, um, just running around being a fool. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I had a great time. Don't get me wrong. I mean. <laughs> But the things you've accomplished, um, just certainly noteworthy. Before we get into you serving as what's called (laughs) ROTUS, the receptionist of the United Mm -hmm. States of America, you served in Barack Obama's (laughs) White House. You served right there in the nerve center of the White House. But before you did all that, you were just a gal right out of high school, joining the Army, and, man, you had a fascinating job. Tell me about your MOS.
2: Um, That's right. So I was a 27 Delta, which was a paralegal specialist. And I worked in our both our criminal law division and our administrative law um, division. So I got to see some of the more interesting sides of the military and how the UCMJ works and how it's applied to um, military service members, especially serving overseas. I was stationed in Heidelberg, Germany, with U.S. Army Fifth Corps. When I came into the Army, I actually came in because my sister was coming in, and we came in on the buddy program, and then... Four weeks into basic training, we discover that she is more allergic than I am to ant bites, of all things. And she is medevaced out of Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and leaves me there. (laughs) And so I'm like, oh, so I'm going to continue on in military service, and you will not. You're like, wait a minute. Aren't
1: I allergic to ants, too? Hey, you better check me twice.
2: This was a buddy program. We came in together. Aren't we supposed to leave together? And that was not the case. But I continued on and ended up, you know, landing in Heidelberg on my nineteenth birthday, and it was the most incredible experience. And I'm so glad that I did it when I was as young as I was because it really helped prepare me for all of the other adventures that I was going to end up being on.
1: Where you ended up, I always thought was dramatic. Uh, you took depositions at, I believe it's Abu Ghraib, right?
2: Um, not, I was. I did not take them at Abu Ghraib. What we did was we took them at off sites for high level detainees, mm. and it was that part was really interesting. Also, how the how the U C M J applies in a war zone, and so headquarters of the deployed for the invasion of Iraq, and I remember flying into Baghdad and trying to set up a courthouse. And we set up our courthouse at um, Camp Victory, which is, of course, named for Headquarters Fifth Corps, the Victory Corps, um, right outside of a mosque inside of um, a building that was right there. And we actually set up a full-fledged courthouse. And we would fly a judge in, and we would prosecute in theater all of the misconduct that took place outside of the theater,
1: and it certainly speaks to a layer of war that most people don't know about. What I find very fascinating was the deposition part. When you were taking depositions from high value targets, like oftentimes you were processing the interviews or the data that came right after, you know, one of our teams went and got a bad guy. And then we got the interview from him from, you know, the Intel guys. Um, you were You were working with those documents. You were seeing and reading what some of them were saying as far as the actual intelligence we were gaining from our targets, right?
2: That's right. And, you know, it required us to work really closely with our Iraqi translators and our our partners there and to develop a significant level of trust with them. And to be there so early on, I saw where that in itself was its own challenge and making sure that the information that we were collecting was accurate and that we were able to inform, you know, our our team, our Staff Just Advocate team down there, and also ensure that the information that they were then providing to our intelligence agencies was accurate.
1: What was one thing you learned after reading some of those statements or learning about what we were hearing? Did it change the way you thought about the nature of the people we were fighting?
2: I think when I was going through it and just listening to a lot of the even with the language barrier there was so much emotion there and I think that so often we look at the other side of people and the people on the other side of war and we are always viewing them through the lens of enemies and when you hear when I was hearing back from them and whether they were active, and because someone is a high-value detainee doesn't mean that they are actively engaged in operations against us. And so some of the people were just, you know, regulators and government officials in Iraq, and they were so emotional. They wanted to protect their families, and they wanted to go home to their families in the same way that so many of us wanted to make sure that we were able to come home safely to our families as well.
1: Did you have faith after you left that assignment that there are people within that region that want to help? Or did you walk away feeling they're just never going to change their belief that the West is evil and that they need to fend off the infidels?
2: Um, I think that both can be true. Um, I left and there were so many incredible Iraqi people. I think about our translator Fatima and just how she became kind of a surrogate mother to our team and made sure that we were eating right and that, you know, we were taking care of ourselves and she was just extended kindness in a way that I didn't expect. But I also think on the opposite side of that there are always gonna be people who see the West as, you know, truly really against everything that they stand for and will do anything to try and bring our Western culture down. So I think you have to see that both both are possible.
1: Now when we return, we'll hear how Darian went out for a few beers during college and that happy hour opened the door to one of the coolest jobs in America. That's ahead when Ion Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs and a reporter with ConnectingVets.com. Now, this week, we watched the inauguration of a new president. And our guest today knows a thing or two about moving into the White House. We'll jump back into our conversation with Army veteran Darian Page, who, like many enlisted veterans, went to college after the Army. And it was there she'd receive a lot more than just thanks for her service. It sounds like you got thanked a little bit because you came back to one hell of a cool job. Um, <laughs> you ended up, and this is what I want to know how it happened, military enlisted ends up in the seat of the White House in what is called the receptionist of the United mm-hmm. States, but, uh, you know, forgive me if I'm getting that title wrong, um, but essentially how'd you end up in the White House and what was specifically your job as rotus
2: It's funny because I have no political experience <laughs> and didn't know a lot about Politics, But I remember in 2004 seeing then-Senator Barack Obama's convention speech and just really being moved by it. I am a woman of mixed race, and I saw someone who looked like me who was talking about how patriotism doesn't have to be red or blue, that th- what unites us is more than what separates us, and that not everything has to be so divisive. And that's how I always felt. And having traveled the world with my family and experiencing different cultures, I just felt like, you know, we live in this country that is so full of opportunity and so incredible. And only in our country could the story of Barack Obama and his rise to the presidency, I think, really exist. And so in 2007, I and I know that this sounds wild and maybe is like your um, 26-year-old, 27-year-old stories, but I was out at a bar with some friends. It was, you know, $20 all you can drink, (laughs) and I was enjoying, as a college student, my $20 all I could drink, and a bunch of other kids walked in in Obama shirts, and one of my girlfriends says, you know, we have to go say something to them. And we went over and started talking to them, and this is, again, the tale of military service and how there is an underlying, you know, fraternity in it. And so one of the guys that we were talking to was a um, helicopter machinist and had been in Baghdad at the same time that I was. And he says, you know, if you want to come be a part of this, send me a resume and we'll make it happen. And I sent him my resume on Monday. I started, I actually interviewed with the headquarters campaign manager, I think on Tuesday, and I started working in the mailroom that night. And I was working a full-time job, I was in college full-time, and now I was volunteering 15 to 20 hours a week. And then 15 to 20 hours a week led to 30, led to me giving up my full-time job and staying in college. And at that point I was a, senior, well, I was a junior when I started Fast forward to clinching the Democratic nomination and then being elected president. I'm in my senior year in college, and it's three days before the election. And the chief operating officer of the campaign, who was a big burly man, he like would have been a good sergeant major, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> and he calls me into his office, and he says, if we win this thing, you're on the first flight out. And I look at him, and I'm thinking, I'm still in college. How how does this work logistically? What even happens? And I just said, okay. And I think, you know, what the military prepares you for is just to say yes and to jump at an opportunity and to not ask too many questions. And I didn't ask too many questions. And we won, and I got on a 6 a.m. flight out to D.C. and went right to the transition office. Whoa. And eventually... Yeah, that led to me working for the transition for another 75 days, and then about a week before the inauguration, the t- um, director of management and administration calls me into his office. He lays out the blueprints to the West Wing, and I had never, even to that point, had never even been to the White House. I'd walked around it, and I'd been on the ellipse, and I remember thinking, and the ellipse is on the um, southern part of the White House, and I thought, oh, it looks so far away. I just I didn't have any real understanding of what took place inside. And he lays out the blueprint to the West Wing and he points out the Oval Office and he points out, you know, the Vice President's office and the director of national security and he says, Can you sit in here and run the West Wing? (laughs) And I just said, Okay. (laughs) And that's what I did. I reported my first day of work was, you know, the day after the inauguration after going to um, several of the inaugural balls, and I was exhausted and terrified and excited, all um, in the same set of feelings. But it was really just the most amazing time of my life to have access and to be a, you know, former junior enlisted service member now sitting in where, you know, where it happens, the room where it happens, like the Hamilton phrase. Mm. And I got to see so many cool things and so meet so many amazing people. And one of I have a number of full circle moments, but one of them was the first time that I met Jim Jones, who was the national security advisor. But in my time as a PFC serving in Heidelberg, Germany, he was the supreme allied commander of US forces in Europe. So the very top of the food chain now is the guy that I see every morning who asks about my mom and brings me you know trinkets from his travels across the globe and it just it was so different that I was like I I can't believe this is happening
1: that is awesome man all I can say is you got your 20 dollars worth of drinks for sure I, I mean, did that's the I best that's the best damn happy hour you ever went to I mean that 20 bucks changed your life
2: <laughs> it really did and you know I think it's speaks to jumping on opportunities as they present themselves. Yeah. And sometimes in our world, it's just about the number of times that you're able to say, okay, I can do that.
1: For me, it also says uh, never pass up an opportunity to go to happy hour. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe that's just <laughs> Well, <me. I> don't... <laughs>
2: maybe that's it. Maybe that's the answer. You just never know what can happen.
1: Tell me one thing that you might share with your friends about President Obama that you know, from being right there. Cause you know, I mean, I know you'd met him maybe a couple times through the campaign or been in the same room mm-hmm. with them, but when you're assigned to that seat, like you're suddenly one of the faces he sees every day. So you get a chance to kind of see behind the curtain a lot. Cause your desk is behind the damn curtain.
2: <laughs> that has... That's right. That's right. Um, I think one of the things that I took away and I you know, traveled with the president, especially once I became his director of veterans wounded wars and military families outreach. We met with so many injured service members. And, you know, I was with him at the Fort hood Memorial after the massacre down there. And we met with gold star families on tarmacs across the country and injured service members at Walter Reed or military hospitals all over the world, really, he, deeply, he had a deep understanding for the cost that our military, the he had a deep understanding for the toll that military service takes on these families and on service members, and I just remember how quiet he would be on the trips back from Walter Reed. And a lot of people don't know this, but he made a commitment um, to our team at least that he would visit a military hospital at least once a quarter. And he did it without a lot of fanfare. And there were times, I think, at the height of the surge, we went in and met, well, not, I guess, I think at the height of, like, post-surge, is what I'm trying to say is we went in and we met with 52 injured service members, a lot of them from the 101st Airborne. And he just, you could tell how much the sacrifice that these service members and the sacrifices of their families had taken on him. And that's what I think I took away from just learning from him and watching him is, the compassion that he had for others, and it really helped shape how I view people across the board.
1: On the other side of the coin, there were, had to be the moments when it was just like, he was funny, and that's like sort of what we see on the SNL skits about him, or, you know, folks, what do you think here? Uh, w- would he ever come out and just be sort of a goofball, or did you ever like see him? I don't know, talking about the Bulls game the night before, or like, what was there a moment when he lost his phone or just like, was there anything oh, that was kind of okay, funny about so him? I,
2: I will tell you the story and I have not told the story to a lot of people. So the president was really good about being on his schedule, okay. but as you know, things come up and sometimes people would have to wait in the lobby for his time. And it would be a part of my job to keep them entertained, whether I was taking um, NBA players down to the Navy mess to meet with, you know, the people who were working down there, the service members that were working down there, or, you know, giving them a little bit of a tour and a history lesson about all the art that was in the West Wing. And one time, Bon Jovi comes by for a visit. (laughs) And a lot of people don't know this... The West Wing only has two really public bathrooms that are available to guests. Everything else is in the Eisenhower Executive Building. The president was running a little behind. I do apologize. Um, Bon Jovi asks if he can use the restroom. I take him down to the restroom and he comes back out immediately. And apparently, he had walked in there, and the toilet in the men's bathroom was overflowing. And so, he says, you know, is there another bathroom that I can use? I go to the vice president's office, ask his staff if, the, if Bon Jovi can use the vice president's bathroom. And, of course, they say yes, and he's using it. I go in, and it is, in fact, an overflowing toilet situation that is not good. <laughs> and so... <laughs> I am mortified. I'm thinking, you know, how do I handle this? What do I do? I feel so bad that, you know, he's gone into the bathroom and he's had a negative experience. And so I go to the um, outer Oval Office, which is right outside of the president's door. And I'm telling um, his assistant and director of Oval Office operations about what happened. And I unfortunately have my back to the Oval Office door, which I learned that day was not the right thing. And I'm saying, I'm explaining what happened. And I just hear the president say, what? (laughs) And I must have, my face completely dropped. I know it did. And I turned around and I said, sir, there's overflowing in the men's bathroom. And Bon Jovi walked in on it. And he just bust out laughing and he's like, well, you need to go call the General Services Administration to go get that taken care of. And I just remember it's he was just (laughs) it's so human and such a dad in that moment. And he thought that it was the funniest thing. And he did not let me live that down for like the rest of the week.
1: (laughs) You can't say it, but you know, it's true.
2: And Bon Jovi was completely gracious about it. He, for the rest of the time that we were at the White House, anytime he had a new album coming out, he would send me a handwritten note. He was completely kind, and <laughs> I was so grateful. Man, if I could meet
1: either one of them, I'd be like, yo, tell me about the day shit hit the fan when you met Bon Jovi, or rather <laughs> shit hit the floor.
2: <laughs> literally hit the floor.
1: Oh, that
0: is awesome.
1: Uh, I wanted to dig in really quick, just because I know you did serve during your time in the White House as a director of veterans, wounded warriors and military families outreach. Looking back, I've talked to so many of my warfighter brothers that were part of that surge. And as you talked about towards the back end of that, when there were a lot of injuries, a lot of people coming back to Walter Reed, you know, was the tough stuff to deal with. We spoke of the amputees. We spoke of the traumatic injuries. I wanna ask it. did you know, did the administration know, did anyone know at the time, the extent to which the VA was handing out that combat cocktail, that collection of drugs that you and I have both heard about from our fellow veterans, the Seroquils, Mm -hmm. the Ambien's, the the serotonin uptake inhibitors, the benzodiazepines, they give you one to sleep, one to relax, one to handle your anxiety, one to uh, handle depression. And some of these guys were ending up drugged out zombies. How, how aware was the administration of that? How aware were you of their situation?
2: What I will say, and it is you no, know, so awful what so many veterans have encountered and the ways in which we, especially initially, and I remember coming back and I suffer from PTS as well. And the way that I was treated, that I was, you know, it, and this is in 2004, you know, I was the person having trouble adjusting. And I was the person that they were doling out the Ambien to. So I remember that initial treatment and what that felt like and the, how unsettled I felt because of that. And fast forward to when we were in the White House while I was the director of outreach and had heard anecdotal stories about how serious it had gone and had definitely met with a number of warfighters that had experienced that level of treatment. I think that there are things that take place with the VA that didn't always make it up to the White House level. And... I would like to believe that if people were fully aware of what was going on, that steps would have been taken and somebody would have interceded, especially with regard to policy, to work to ensure that there were changes being made. And so while I was there, Secretary Shinseki was still in office, and the decisions that his team made I know have been questioned and have made there were some questionable decisions at that level that were made and so I'm really challenged by that question
1: yeah that's completely fair to say Um, I knew it was challenging it's always been one of the most challenging questions to ask of my career it's been one of the most challenging Mm -hmm. things to report on because there is no simple answer Um, it's interesting to just hear from you the fact that those things don't always bubble up and it never seems to bubble up to the extent of which I think it needs to. And I think you as my fellow enlisted sister there, I mean, I think maybe they need someone like us in that liaison position to just
2: cut the crap and come so through the policy I, stuff. That's what I learned, especially when it came to mental health. And we um, signed a, the president signed a mental health EO traveled down to Fort bliss, Texas, Um, for it. And when we got there, I remember, and this was part of the ability, especially as a former enlisted person to cut through some of the crap, like you said. And so we get to the military base and they only want to put out in this round table that the president's having with chief of staff of the army and all of his senior military leadership. They want to have a round table around mental health but they haven't engaged those junior enlisted service members and they hadn't engaged the spouses who are at home and deal with this every single day. And so we actually had to change the direction of this round table because I saw that they were only putting out their most healthy, their best and brightest, but we're only as good as the people who really need the help. And if the president's not getting that information, And hearing directly from the spouses who were seeing it every single day, from the service members who were experiencing the TBI and the PTS every single day, if he doesn't hear from them, then he can not advise his military leadership to act accordingly. And so we changed it. And the president had some really hard conversations.
1: And we'll be back with more fascinating conversations with Army veteran and co host of Pod Is a Woman, Darian Page, when Ion Veterans returns. All right, welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and uh, we're going to jump back into the last part of our conversation now with Army veteran Darian Page. She went from enlisted in the Army to the Oval Office of the White House as the receptionist for President Barack Obama. And now we'll hear what she's up to and how she started the podcast Pod is a Woman.
2: So I am still, you know, involved with community engagement, and I am fortunate to be able to do that for um, Lyft, and I'm really enjoying the work that we're doing. But we've also launched a podcast called Pod is a Woman, and it brings together um, some really diverse voices, especially women's voices from the administration. We all share a common thread of not having a political background before going into Um, work for the White House and work for President Obama. We come from, in some cases, you know, immigrant backgrounds, my military experience. My um, co-host, Johanna, comes from Galesburg, Illinois, which lost manufacturing um, due to the recession. And so we come from really humble beginnings and worked really hard to get to where we were, my... Um, another co-host Alejandra graduated from Harvard and so we've seen you know the toll of service we've seen the toll of what it's like to pay for college on credit cards and accrue debt and we have also seen what it's like to serve our country at the highest levels. and we bring that perspective to the podcast and especially where women's voices in politics have not always been welcomed. And if people talk about expanding the table and we're talking about creating a whole new table where more people are welcomed and where this common thread of unity and having challenging conversations. I think as a country, we are seeing ourselves at a place where difficult conversations have to be had. Mm. And, we're trying to create a space
1: for that right on again. The podcast is called pod is a woman and on it. Yeah. You're, um, you know, you've got an all-star team there. You got Johanna Masca, Johanna Masca. Mm-hmm. You've got Alejandra Campo Verde. Uh, you guys all okay. served in, um, positions within a white house administration. When I look at this as a man and I feel weird even saying that, <laughs> Because I am a man. But I mean, like, you know, we don't look at podcasts. I don't look at entertainment always from a gender perspective. I'm a viewer, you're a viewer, she's a viewer, he's a viewer, they're a viewer. I mean, everybody's a viewer or a listener. You know, I mean, that that's what it is. It's entertainment. But Mm -hmm. I noticed that you guys all come from these kind of elite backgrounds or these senior level positions within administrations where most people don't get a chance to see inside. And then I want to go back to the gender thing. And you guys do discuss pop culture and women's issues. I think it's a little more level on pop culture issues. But when we talk about political issues, I wanted to ask from the inside. Did you see it while you were inside the machine that the world is not the same for women still? Are there moments when like, I don't know, the doors get closed or they look at the or or a woman is viewed as, you know, well, let's just let us talk about it for a moment. You know, like we see circa 1960s. Does that still exist out there? And pardon me for even asking, but I'm just so ignorant because one, I've never been behind the curtain and two, you know, again, just big dumb guy over here. Um, Does that attitude really exist? Is it pervasive? Is it something that you witnessed?
2: And it certainly is something that I witness and continue to witness it in the way that women are treated the way that our bodies are regulated. Even as far as the way that we dress in the White House, the the way that our dating history, I remember when I started as a receptionist within the first month or two, um, a gossip blog came out and they said, we're not trying to start anything, but Michelle, have you seen your husband's receptionist? And that would never happen to a man. And so we are still constantly judged by the way that we look. And our decision to have kids, to marry, to date, all of that is on the table in a way that it really isn't as often displayed, especially publicly, for men. Mm. And so we're definitely we're definitely pushing back on that. and we are encouraging, and I think that you see um, in the, in this election cycle, more than any other that I've seen, where, organizations that support women from Time's Up to USO women are saying, you know, we have her back. You're not going to judge women in politics differently than you judge men. And you're not going to attack women based on the way that they look or, you know, how, who they have dated or who they have married. Like, you don't ask those questions
1: very cool and i'm glad i asked because you said a lot right there and i think that that is the power behind the podcast and maybe that could be your catchphrase i don't know if you want to use it it's free um to you (laughs) well thank you but uh pod is a woman it's a podcast it's everywhere you get podcasts and i did notice that as you talked to uh on your very first episode dr jill biden um you know some hope and some discussion of what it could be like And of course, at that time, Kamala Harris wasn't even announced. But uh, in subsequent episodes, you talked a little bit about that. Certainly not just a woman, but a woman of color, a woman of mixed race, a woman of all these different, you know, boxes that get checked. Does that give you hope for the future that that we can redefine things and that we're going to evolve?
2: I do. I have a lot of hope just because we're seeing so many firsts and what I'm hopeful for is that we get to a place where we're past the first, the first black, death, the first woman, that's the first, you know, we're seeing so many firsts in this administration and the door being opened. But what I want is behind that first or another three, or three to five come in and then bring in another three to five. And the power is in our diversity. That's really what I think is like the American superpower is our diversity and our ability to... Look around and bring more people into the fold to create space for one another, for leadership opportunities, for perspectives. And when we have that, we are a better, more inclusive country and a better, more inclusive government. And so I remain, I mean, just as someone who has seen sort of the American dream, where someone who enlisted in the Army at 19 could go on to serve for president and be a mother raising daughters in this incredible country of ours, like I remain hopeful and optimistic for what's ahead. And I'm hoping that the goal of this administration, while handling a number of really incredible challenges, that unity is amongst them. Right on. And
1: I think that's the perfect spot to leave it. Darian Page, one of three (laughs) hosts of Pod is a Woman, available everywhere you get podcasts. And uh, most especially, a sincere thank you for being on the show. Because more than anything, you are my fellow enlisted veteran. You're Army, I'm Navy, but man, we get along. That is absolutely awesome, and I wish you the best. Well, thank you
2: so much. It's been a pleasure, Phil.
1: All right, so that does it for this week's show. Thank you for listening. Now, we'd love to hear from you, so follow us on Twitter at IonVeterans, or you can reach me at PhilBriggsVet. I'm always down to get your hot takes and spicy memes, and I'd love to talk to you every week, so please like and subscribe. Hell, even give us a review of the show, because the comments and reviews really help us tailor the show to you. Again, I'm Phil Briggs, Navy veteran and reporter with ConnectingVets.com in Washington, D.C. And I look forward to talking to you again on another episode of CBS Audio's Ion Veterans.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye on Veterans ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. You know how to book flights and hotels.
2: All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News Business Analyst, Certified Financial Planner, and Host of the Money Watch Podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you.